0: Do something a little out of your box. Don't throw everything out of the box. Nobody's ever suggesting that, right? I think that's why the whole debate about ESG and impact yeah. and allocation and all that, totally get it. Like, I mean, again, I I was a member of an administration that have one of the largest pension funds in the world. I, I understand what it means that if there's a pension shortfall, we have to come up with the money.
1: You are listening to the AFR podcast. Real estate technology, cross-border investing, and the opportunities of a changing world. Let's start a conversation now.
2: So um, affordable housing, infrastructure, ESG, the need for all three is abundantly clear, but the how are we going to do it answer is um, elusive for some investors, but, but not all. Our guest today is actually making that happen. Alicia Glenn is uh, founder and principal of M Squared, a women-owned New York-based real estate developer and impact investing program. Uh, in the past, uh, she was the former New York City deputy mayor to Bill de Blasio uh, 2014 through 2019, uh, where she worked on all of the above and, and certainly made a significant impact in terms of raising the amount of available affordable housing units by 100,000 in 2017 and 2018. Uh, twice being named the most powerful woman in New York. Once was not enough uh, by Crane's uh, New York. Uh, she has initiated large scale planning efforts at Sunnyside Yards and Governor's Island. She uh, led rezoning of, of various districts. She, uh, before all of that, before her political life, she was at Goldman Sachs uh, with the urban investment group that she led. Um, and she's a regular contributor to City Labs. I mean, I could probably just do this forever, and we wouldn't need you to be the <laughs> yeah, guest. Let's, so. let's get to the subject. Let's get to, let's get let's
0: to get the Let's get to the point. to the point. So, do it. Thank you, Alicia, thank for, for joining Thank you me. for having me.
2: So a um, significant number of our members, global institutional investors, tell me that they want to make more investments in affordable housing, but they have trouble doing it at scale. What should they do? How do you do it? How do you make that happen at scale?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that is the great question of the day, which is, you know, historically, at least in the U.S. Um, and in most of Europe and the world, the whole realm of affordable housing has been the um, the job of the government, right? To build, provide, run housing. People call it affordable housing, social housing, public housing. Um, but... At the end of the day, it makes you think about a couple of things. One, what is affordable housing, right? I mean, traditionally, you you sort of start with the question of who are we trying to house? What's the problem we're trying to solve? And, And the problem that we're trying to solve is that, you know, broadly speaking, Incomes and wages are not rising as fast as the cost of living, um, you know, particularly in major metropolitan areas. And so this is no longer the realm of just poor people right, mm-hmm. who need subsidized housing or affordable housing. But what you know, my kids would often say, regular people. It's really <laughs> hard to find a place to live <laughs> if you're a regular person, or an artist, or a person who works in a modern manufacturing facility, or as a teacher, or a social worker, or as we all now know post-COVID. The hundreds of thousands of people upon which our entire, you know, urban economies uh, rely upon to keep. Do us you moving.
2: ever get pushback when you're talking about that? I mean, it sounds like you say the word affordable housing, and immediately people will say, No, 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 I, I don't want affordable housing in my neighborhood. Right, cause, because oh my God, that
0: means poor people, or let's be honest, highly correlated to race. Yeah. Um, and race and income, uh, sort of bias and prejudice are real. And I, these are part of the broader conversations we have to have as a, as a country. But at the end of the day, the problem is that the rent's too damn high, right? Yeah. And that's basically the way to put it. And so the whole notion of affordable housing now has to go beyond this sort of sense that in any given election or any given government, X amount of dollars are going to be put into the government you know, coffers in order to provide affordable housing. What has been happening over the past 25 or 30 years, and I'm old enough to admit this, is again, these, these more thoughtful approaches to figuring out how to finance housing that serves not just the lowest, lowest income people who will never really be able to afford a, a place to live, um, 100% on their on what they make, but to think about how are we creating buildings and projects and cities that provide housing that is affordable to a wider range of people. And now in America, we use a pretty simple metric. Um, Housing is affordable if you're paying less than 30% of your pre-tax income on your housing expenses. Now, obviously, the poorer you are, the less likely you are to be able to find a place to live that's 30%, right? Whereas if you're a super duper rich person, if you make $10 million a year, it's hard to even spend that much money on your rent. Although the billionaires are trying (laughs) um, and God bless them as long as they pay their taxes. Um, And so what we have now is an opportunity um, for a more blended model, a model where there are public resources that are available. But blended with private capital, you can create buildings and capital structures that allow you to build buildings that have market rate units in it, units that are affordable for, as I said, what my kids would say, regular people who are having trouble, and then also much lower income families. And that's good for a whole variety of reasons, I think. And again, whether, you're, whether this is true globally or not, I think most people would say that the long history, let's say the past century of having people segregated by income, right? By having poor people put into those projects or put out on the outskirts of town or in some cities in the middle of town, all that history of real economic segregation has led to some of the challenges that we're finding today, right? On the social front mm-hmm. and on the in- and on economic growth. So I believe deeply, deeply, deeply in two things. One, that mixed income neighborhoods and buildings produce better results for cities and for people. Um, And two, that in order to do that, you have to be able to leverage private capital because this is not a problem that the government can address on its own. Mm -hmm. And for if you're an investor, it's a really interesting asset class. Yeah. A really interesting asset class because you do have public support, you do have downside protection, you do are to some extent insulated right from the vagaries of the market. Um, You know, I talk a lot about how during COVID, Um, You know, pure play, 100% market rate housing in major metro cities like San Francisco and New York and Washington, you know, rents dropped 40, 50%. In the mixed income or affordable housing sector, rents didn't really drop much at all, and even collections barely dropped. Mm -hmm. And so it's also, if you just think about it from a pure play investment perspective, it's a good hedge against what can be very shocking markets right now, given all the turmoil that we're seeing.
2: You know, and we've seen this kind of data for a long time that that this is the the way to make to, to make consistent return is to look at the middle, to look at in, in, in many cases, to look at the bottom and to see how to do that smartly. And yet we have a perception problem. And you know, you've worked as a politician in, in perhaps one of the hardest kettles in in, <laughs> in, in, in the world yep. in terms of working. How do you work with people that still still believe that the model that we established maybe 75, 100 years ago um, is one that makes sense today, despite all evidence to the contrary. It's almost like you could you could present all this evidence and, and people would still go, yeah, but there's a poor person right. next door and that ruins the value of my place Yeah, and everything else.
0: You know, I mean, you're raising a really good point because at some level, the answer to all those questions has always been data, 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 right? And there's actually unbelievable amounts of data to show that Having a lower income person living in the same building as you does not destroy property values. Look, there's always an anecdote, right? But right. The same thing, you could have like some rich kid who went to Yale who like has a frat party when he's home from vacation and blows up the whole apartment, right? I mean, the biases, when we sort of think about, you know, people talk a lot about implicit bias right now. Um, you could always find the exception to the rule. But the rule is that you know, in mixed income housing and well-run affordable housing, um, which is usually run by mission-driven owners and or nonprofits, um, your likelihood of your property values going down is, is actually less likely than in some other neighborhoods where, again, the vagaries of the market and the assessed valuations can go up and down. And the results in terms of people's educational outcomes, their health outcomes, their economic opportunity, and all of this is true. And there is data, data, data. Now, how do, you, how do you translate data into what for some people is just this visceral kind of yeah. feeling that I guess you're, you're, you're conveying? You know, that is like the age old question of how do we break down sort of racial, economic, and gender stereotypes, right? People look at me and they're like, who's this woman who thinks she can run all these businesses and start a firm and do this? And oh my God, she's so aggressive. I mean, it's, it's no different than any other battle we fight in order to break down some of these sort of traditional biases. But I think, at least in my mind now, and I think this is a really interesting time for people, you know, th- what I like to say is we all have a stake in affordability right now. Right. Like, it is, it is not a hypothetical, right? And even if you are a super, super wealthy person and you don't really care, you don't really, it's not like you don't care, you got your own problems. At the end of the day, you have a stake in affordability because if there are nobody, if there is nobody within two miles or two hours to drive a fire engine, or nobody who is gonna come and you know clean your kitchen for you. And I, I don't mean that in a snotty or arrogant way. Right. We have a interconnected economy and that relates to a social contract. And so we need to keep those things mutually reinforcing each other. And that's gonna require people thinking differently and acting differently and finding different people to invest with, which I think right. goes back to your original question, which is what do you do if you wanna do this? Yeah. It's hard because, again, generally speaking, the housing markets have been very binary. You either invest in, in at least in the United States, um, a very safe asset class that's like a tax credit market, and you just buy and sell tax credits, which are just yield, you know, low yield, very liquid, no no to low risk. And that serves a very small percentage of people who need affordable housing or you have real estate private equity funds that are investing in highest and best use and building condos or building the Mandarin Oriental or whatever it is they're doing and God bless them, right, that's great. What I'm doing and what I think is more important and more and more investors are beginning to understand is that there is a sort of blended middle, right, where you can say, I can infuse real equity into building projects and, and developing neighborhoods where there is return of equity in a traditional sense, it is going to be, and hopefully people just understand this and people stop lying about this, it makes me crazy. There is a cost. There is, whether it's 100 BIPs or 200 BIPs, however many BIPs it is, because there is a component of these projects where people are on fixed incomes and fixed rents. So you're giving up some NOI. Mm -hmm. That said, I would say on a risk-adjusted basis, that's a very good um, balance and one that you would have in your portfolio. So what we're doing at M-squared and what I hope more and more people are going to do, and we did this at Goldman Sachs, was to say we want to be the equity providers for partners who want to build mixed income buildings. And so there is now a vehicle for institutional investors to put in, just like you'd put into any other opportunistic fund or core plus fund or value add. I don't know where you would want to put this. You know, It's a build to core with ESG, with a less risky profile. Yeah. But we're building stuff. And, and you have to build it. You can't just buy and sell this stuff all day long because... Newsflash, there are more people, mm-hmm. not less people. There yeah. are more people. And we
2: haven't been keeping up.
0: Not yet. even close. Yeah.
2: It, it, it's interesting to me, you use the term, and, and and your firm talks about mixed income because of the projects that you're doing that are that are mixed income. And that, that's not a term you hear a lot these days. Um, I don't know why exactly, mm-hmm. because it makes total sense. What everyone accepts, I think, now, because the, the success of these projects have, have uh, certainly proven out, is mixed use, if it's done intelligently. Um, and and yet, I think you're doing a mixed use, mixed income project. So, so tell me <laughs> about I hope we're not that. mixing
0: people up I, too I, much. I, I'm, I'm very mixed up. I don't up, want but... you to be mixed up. I want you to see that all of this mixing up <laughs> creates more powerful, fabulous assets and outcomes. Um, look, I believe very strongly, and again, these are somewhat biases of a New York City, you know, born and bred human being, but I think resonate Particularly with, with people who, and more and more of the world, is becoming obviously very urbanized. I also think that, you know, the old food groups, right? And, and people talk about this. You know, Everybody goes to business school, they're like, oh, what food group are you in? Oh, I'm in industrial, I'm in retail, I'm in commercial, I'm in resi, I'm in single family. Uh, okay. That's A, boring, and B, it's not actually the way people should or want to live. And it doesn't no. actually build great sustainable neighborhoods and assets. So I think of these projects as a, a new asset class, if you will. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we think about it in a lot of different ways. People think about it sometimes. It's like the 15-minute city where within 15 minutes of any building, you can get your groceries, you can have healthcare, you can go to a cool bar, you can go to a park, you can have culture, you can have entertainment. And 15 minutes is probably about the max you would wanna see. Imagine if you could do that in a dense packed urban environment where you could house a lot of people and kids who would never have a chance to actually go to Whole Foods, get to actually go to Whole Foods. Now you might say, who can afford to go to Whole Foods? We call it Whole Check, but you know what? We have worked on things with people like Whole Foods where we've established programs where they hire kids from the building to learn how to be you know, in the grocery business. Yeah. And you know, I'd rather have people having access to higher quality services and education and culture and open space and it's hard it's hard to finance those things right because people are like oh well what's the well i don't understand is the noi coming from the grocer is the noi coming from dan
2: kreef has spent the last 10 years trying to define it right i mean they still don't there's no way to like figure out exactly what it is and
0: so you know one of my like pet peeves are like i don't know i'd love to win a nobel prize for this like i want to call it like you know the it literally is we have to create a financing mechanism that is somewhat agnostic to the food group but focusing on what is happening in the asset and understanding that yes there's a different risk profile right for you know a really cool local guy who's making gluten-free brownies and so he's not a credit tenant but you know what 10 years from now that building will be worth more because those kids made great gluten-free brownies and now they are the next you know, yeah. global gluten-free brownies. Somebody's gotta take that risk and be thoughtful about. It's sort of a combination of patient capital and get out of your food groups.
2: I think that's incredible advice. I mean, when you think about how much our thinking has been put into these boxes and continues to be so, and yet, every other industry outside of real estate would be talking about their market. They'd be talking about their or customers. disrupting or D- let's disrupt. Or disrupt, yes. What the yeah. heck? Uh, you know, and and there are folks that do that in real estate. It's just they quite often aren't institutional. Correct. You know, and it's it takes a while, and, and rightly so. They're investing people's pensions. So, mm-hmm. how you get there, how you cross that bridge, I think, is is so essential. And and you talk. To a lot of investors, uh, how how are they getting past maybe some of the weirdness of your mixed 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 world?
0: <laughs> well, hopefully I'm doing either a very good job of mixing them up or we're not actually that mixed up. I mean, look at you know I didn't I didn't invent all of this stuff, right? I mean, I, I'm I've been in this for a while and I think I probably have been an innovator or a disruptor <laughs> or whatever it is um, to take a page out of the tech bros. but um,
2: and, and just so everyone knows she is not wearing. A cashmere hoodie.
0: That is I know. I barely <laughs> even God, I am wearing some very cool boots. Um, the answer to that question is look, it is a mixed bag. And and not and and not all investors are the same, right? Mm-hmm. And there are investors who I believe strongly understand that the world is really changing and that we are on the precipice of some very scary outcomes, right? And a lot of that is being channeled into sustainability and climate change. And that is correct because at some level, none of this matters if we don't have a planet. But if you sort of begin to think about all of these, Different, different sort of push pull that are going on in the world, they are pretty interconnected. And so there are investors who are thinking to themselves, well, maybe it's not so crazy that when you think about investing in the built environment and in real estate, we should be putting money into strategies that are saying, you know what, we're not building parking here, right? And, and, and I'm not even a real estate person, he's saying to himself, but I know that cars are bad. Why are cars bad? Cars create emissions. People should be on mass transit. OK, well, if you want to be on mass transit, you got to live near mass transit, right? And so there is, I believe, this sort of beginning of connecting the dots, either from an environmental perspective or from a holy shit, there's a lot of really angry poor people in the world. And we're seeing a lot of social, economic, and political disruption. And we really need to get out of you know the way we've been doing things. That's not everybody, right? And yeah. of course, people have to be fiduciaries. But I would argue that if you're not allocating some portion of your money to trying to push this sort of new way of doing development and thinking about the built environment, you're actually doing a disservice to your pensioners because it's their grandchildren who have to figure out how they're going to live in New York City or Tokyo or London or Stockholm or Austin. Because you know what? You can't live in Austin anymore because the rent's too damn high. Yeah. And how's your grandchildren? How are they going to go down there and like become you know the great next songwriter or whatever they want to do if they have to live three hours out of boston
2: there's There's an interesting correlation in in institutional investors' desires in terms of where they're going and what they say they want to do um, They're all focused on the sun belt um, which in 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 light of everything that's happened over the last year environmentally is a bit sort of, of a head scratcher for me yeah, but there's some irony there but um part of what they have said up till now which is not true anymore um, it is definitely kind of tipped to the point that they're no longer that less expensive in terms of housing but has been that it's less expensive housing it's it's affordable housing which means you attract young people which means you know you, you're able to maybe peel some some high earning folks from New York because you know or potentially high earning in the future um, to go to Austin or to go to Dallas or to go to any of these markets um, I, I keep wondering, as you talk about affordable housing, as in the Sun Belt, if that is, is something that people gravitate to. Because I, I'm frankly, personally frustrated. I, I look at that and I go, wait a minute, we're, we're missing something. Yeah. Certainly the North is missing something here. But also the investors are, uh, missing an opportunity.
0: Make sure I understand the question. you think investors are missing an opportunity to do things outside of the Sun Belt, or they're missing an opportunity to do something in the, in the, in the Sun Belt? The former. The former. Um, I, think, I think the attraction of the Sun Belt is as follows for investors because investors, again, and they're not all the same, but they do tend to sort of have a, a, a more simplistic view of some of these things at a macro level. At a macro level, they're seeing huge demographic shifts, particularly from California because it's so incredibly expensive. You have much lower cost of construction, non-union towns. And you do have some rising wages, although very uneven. What I think they're also, but I, on the other hand, it's actually not that much more affordable um, because your air conditioning bills will kill you. No, I know this. Yeah. But your util- when we actually talk about affordability metrics, um, and you know, New York City is always ranked as like number 12th most expensive city in America. And it's like, how can that be? It's so expensive to live in New York City. I'll tell you why. Because we have an amazing mass transit system that's virtually free and heat's included. Yeah. You go to a, you, know, you seriously, yeah. you, you rent maybe 1500 bucks a month in Phoenix for two-bedroom, but your air conditioning bill is going to be 800 bucks, And not to mention, you're driving your car. everywhere. Yeah. So, like, at some level, right, yes, I understand from, like, a demographic institutional investor, the going in yield on cost is very attractive. And that may be a good thing to do. I would not say that it's the right thing necessarily to do either for the planet or for humans because humans are now also going to be saddled with enormous air conditioning bills and stuck in their cars. Yeah. So I would say, wow, if I'm an institutional investor and I care about infrastructure, what I would be doing is saying to the city of Phoenix, okay, you know what? we're going to go finance a whole new light rail system for you. Mm-hmm. Right? Then we get back to what is infrastructure. There's social infrastructure and there's hard infrastructure. And for these Sunbelt cities, and this is happening in Austin right now, you know, they voted for a bond initiative for a light rail. I mean, investors have got to be pushing municipalities to really take on these big, hard infrastructure projects to deal with this, like, sprawl. Now, this is why I would say New York and the Northeast is a good place, because you do have, actually, mass transit systems that were built for bigger cities. We're just about now in New York at 8.8 million people where we were when our mass transit system was built. We have unbelievable remaining capacity um we have tight you know really great streets i've always said to people you want to be an environmentalist be an urbanist build up not out yeah um we have incredibly unbelievable opportunities to repurpose old buildings um which is the best thing you can do for the environment yeah um and at the end of the day you know the more capital that is coming in to say as the northeast competes and needs to compete with the sunbelt Let's build housing for lots and lots of different kinds of people, not just billionaires and not just people who are, unfortunately, they're homeless or at a current minimum wage, cannot afford to live anywhere. And we have to. And we've done this before. And in the 60s and 70s, we we took middle class housing seriously. And think about MetLife. Think about employer housing. Think about the great companies of the past. Why aren't the pension funds those companies now saying, we will invest, and instead of making a 15, we'll make a 10, because we're going to build housing for the people who fuel our economy. doesn't sound like the craziest thing to me. Right. I think that I'm going to have to double check that, but I yeah. think we are numbered, there's an affordability index that's released. I think Brookings does it, um, yeah. maybe with the um, Urban Land Institute, that takes into account all the different things that actually are your fixed costs, right, that make your life affordable. Or, or think about it inversely, what's your disposable income? And, you know, places like New York, you know, actually score pretty well because of the level of services. And again, this transportation issue. And we have a huge rent stabilized, um, you know, we have an unbelievable amount of our stock that even though new buildings are really, really, really expensive, you know, the city and I give the city a lot of credit. And that's why we are the goddamn affordable (laughs) housing uh, center of the world really smart people in the late 70s and early 80s when everybody thought the city was going down the toilet made a really conscious decision to invest in our neighborhoods and invest in our stock and not do massive slum clearance and not knock down all these neighborhoods but see these buildings and see these neighborhoods as engines of economic revitalization like it cracks me up today when people talk about like oh you know there's only two kinds of people in the world people who live in brooklyn or want to live in brooklyn (laughs) Right. I stole that from Mayor-elect Adams, but we talk about it all the time. You know, imagine if in the 70s, you know, what most people would have said, which is just tear this shit down. Right. And the city's shrinking. I mean, look what happened to Detroit. So I think that one of the things that New York has been really smart about is being the first city to understand that your housing stock and your neighborhoods and your economy are absolutely intertwined that there will be suburban growth and that's fine. But New York City has always said, we are going to take our own resources. We, New York City was the first city to ever float bonds for a capital housing program. And say this is a municipal responsibility because ultimately without places for our artists and dreamers and innovators and firemen to live, we're not gonna be the great New York we are. And that has continued to pay off. People have written off New York City how many times? Oh. In our
1: lifetimes, quite a bit. It's
0: ridiculous. Newsflash. Who's back? (laughs) Whose rents are going up? Who wants to live in New York City? Pretty much everybody who probably spent a weekend in Nashville and said, oh, yeah, I want to move to Nashville. You don't want to really move to Nashville. You think you want to move to Nashville. But if you're not from Nashville, you probably want to come back to Brooklyn. (laughs)
2: Uh, I'll have to remember that. Um, No offense to Nashville. uh, No. no, no, Sure, there's lots
0: of nice things in Nashville. I've been there. But like. At the end of the day, people aren't emigrating from around the globe to go to Nashville, right? I mean, no. people are emigrating to the United States because New York City is still the greatest city in the world, and I attribute a lot of that to some of those really smart decisions that the sort of generation right before me made and that I was proud enough to be able to continue to work on, which is pushing the envelope. Yeah. How do we do this better? How do we like take our industrial waterfront and turn it into great mixed-use neighborhoods? How do we, you know, and don't just make it a park. Make it a park with people living in it. Yes, Mm. that's controversial. But you know what? That made that park financially feasible because those rich people are paying the bills to keep the park there. These are not, these things don't happen without interventions and without investors and policymakers who think about this stuff.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think about, you know, New York, the 20th century, all the way through was, was a heated debate over what to do with New York and what direction to, and sometimes one side wins, sometimes the other side wins. But I mean, the, the whole, you know, uh, Moses era and mm-hmm. everything that was going there and everything that we're still living with uh, from that era. Yeah, still stuff um, to fix. And, yeah. uh, you know, I, I love that his planned interchange is now some of the most valuable real estate in the world. I, I just think that's, that's just, I don't know, kismet. I, I, so, There's really one last area that I wanted to to just explore a little bit with you because it's something that people talk about all the time and they don't do enough about it. And partially because they don't know how. So um, when I first looked at your uh, profiles of your your firm with all your leaders and all your wonderful people that are working here, I suddenly realized something that I hadn't seen for a while which was two token men. right on and i was like wow okay so that's interesting that's very different from from what we usually see um everyone's talking about it 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 Mm. certainly is something that's that's something that right now everyone in real estate is holding their heart and going oh my god this is terrible uh they we should have been saying it a long time ago but um how yeah how
0: you know it is it's it is terrible (laughs) (laughs) it is terrible and what i think is most terrible is that it's been about the same amount of terrible for a long time. Um, and, you know, I think this is partially a function of the way the real estate industry um, has traditionally, you know, who the owners and, and sort of the, look at, there's the big families, right? Yeah. And there've always been big families, big families across the globe who own real estate. And, and there's been obviously a very heavy bias in those big families towards, you know, the male heirs continuing the business. And and many of the young women and women in those families are super smart and terrific and amazing and go into the business, they tend to often be shunted to the side on like sales or marketing and, Mm -hmm. and not in the, you know, more sticks and bricks hard part of it. And then the other part of the equation is really the finance world, right? And like, you know, how this stuff gets financed and who are the big players. And, you know, the lack of women who get the opportunity to really show their chops that they understand how, you know, real estate works is, you know, a real problem. Um, and the only way to solve that problem, and there's only one way to solve these problems, which is, and I always say this to anybody, don't keep whining to me about how you have trouble finding smart women, Right that is an impossible statement just that that is like that that statement is nonsensical what you're saying is that when you see a resume from a woman or you meet a woman it's she's not acting like or sounding like or has the exact same background that you have and either if she's aggressive and tough and like you know whatever people have called me in the press that's scary and weird and you don't want that because that can be abrasive or they're meek and sweet and then they can't handle it. How about here's an idea? What do you care? Hire (laughs) a bunch of all of them, just like you hire all these guys. And if they suck, then fire them. The answer to that is hire, 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 hire. And some of these women are gonna be amazing, and some of these women are gonna be terrible, newsflash. But you have to, with intentionality, stop complaining and like, finding excuses, she's too meek, she's too tough, she hasn't underwritten enough deals. Well, how could she have underwritten a deal if she never was given a deal to underwrite? I mean, are you kidding me? So the answer to the question of what to do is every single time you have an opening, hire a woman. And if a year from now that person sucks, fire them. Because you know what, we're big girls, we can handle it. And I think this is is the only answer. It's not a pipeline problem, all this other crap I hear. It's not a pipeline problem. I have a company here. Yeah. I get a hundred resumes a day. Most of the boys I throw in the bin. You better be amazing if you're going to make it to the top of my pile. Right. And like, I just won't have it. And by the way, I've had lots of women who work for me who i have had to fire. Yeah. Nobody likes to do it, but that's like, that's life. But give me the chance to fire you. <laughs> Don't tell me pipeline. Yeah. There are more women coming out of B school than there are men. So what are you talking about? Law school. I, I went to law school. I didn't go to B school. Right. There are more women coming kind to of law school. You think people who are lawyers can't figure out how to like read a mortgage? Yes, we can. <laughs> Newsflash. Hire more women.
2: Love it. I you know, it, it's interesting to me that well, first of all, a lesson I learned very early on simple is hard. But it is simple.
0: Not that hard. No, really. I mean, the way people, I've been on diversity committees. Uh,
2: I, I, I might disagree with you. Here's what's hard. Yeah. I have to admit that my view of the world is wrong. I have to change the way I operate. That requires me to look inside myself and really accept that maybe everything isn't great. To do that requires some guts. It requires some real courage. And some intellectual honesty. And then be able to say, okay, I'm going to go out there. I'm going to hire a bunch of women. Just going to keep hiring them.
0: Okay, I'm glad you had a great confessional. Yeah, knock yourself out. Do that. And all <laughs> of your male colleagues should go have a good deep look inside. And then go hire a bunch of smart women. Yeah. I mean, we all have our own demons, you know. And, and what's even more ironic about this, right? All these guys who are like super smart and tech-driven and data-driven. And everything, as you well know. The data is that women outperform every single time. There's more data. You have to read one more McKinsey report about how when women are in positions of authority and women are in decision making and when they're sitting in an investment committee, the, either in the public markets or the private markets, results are better. No. So, so there really is nothing else to do other than, as you said, go have a deep talk with yourself, understand how biased and sexist you are, and get over it. Yeah. And you're gonna make more money.
2: Yeah, yeah, get over it. God, I just, I, I feel like I'm getting like a New York therapy <laughs> session here. Just all these things, get over it, hire women, yeah. get on with it.
0: Put money into like Put smart mon- projects. Yeah. Yeah, you I'll know what, it. support women managers, support women developers. Do something a little out of your box. Don't throw everything out of the box. Nobody's ever suggesting that right I think that's why the whole debate about ESG and impact yeah. and allocation and all that totally get it like I mean again I I was a member of an administration that have one of the largest pension funds in the world I, I understand what it means that if there's a pension shortfall we have to come up with the money right but it's a big pension fund and and what what I keep saying to people is you know a billion dollars out of a trillion dollar pension fund is in fact a rounding error, and the catalytic impact of providing capital to something that's innovative in the housing space or to a set of people who haven't had a chance to prove themselves is just so exponential that I just don't understand why people can't just get over it, right?
2: Yeah. Let's leave it there. We've run out of time, and you've just given too much brilliance. Anything beyond this is just going to be a, you know, disappointing. Uh, don't uh, just
0: applaud, send money, as my, uh, <laughs> my brother used to say. <laughs> so
2: we have, been, uh, we have been talking today with Alicia Glenn from M Squared. Thank you
1: so much.
0: Thank you so much.
1: You've been listening to the AFIRE podcast. Remember to subscribe on your favorite podcast subscription service, such as Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitchers, and others. AFIRE is not engaged in providing tax, accounting, or legal advice. No content in this podcast is to be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any asset. Some information included has been obtained from third-party sources considered to be reliable, though AFIRE is not responsible for guaranteeing the accuracy of third-party information. The opinions expressed are those of its respective contributors and sources and do not necessarily reflect those of AFIRE.